0: And like somewhere in the middle of all of that desire, I realized that as I was translating, I was also praying, fully putting myself in these words that were not really my words, but were still words to God and words to this family also. And just kind of putting all my intention and like my desire for these folks to be okay.
1: On In Good Faith, we believe that all faith traditions have something to teach us about how God is working in the world and in our lives. So, join us to listen, learn, and be amazed. Welcome to In Good Faith. I'm Stephen Cap Perry in studio today with senior producer for the show, Heather Bigley. Hello. And Heather, this is really interesting for me because I get to listen to an interview you did with really, I think, an important writer.
2: Yes, we are talking today with Alejandra Oliva, who is an essayist, translator, and immigrant justice advocate. And that's what her new book is about called Rivermouth. And she's worked at the National Immigrant Justice Center in Chicago in community engagement, and she holds a Master's of Theological Studies from Harvard Divinity School.
1: I don't want to give too much away because we're going to get there quickly, but— There's always this idea of people saying, well, Jesus liked to overthrow tables or Jesus was always with the marginalized. And then how much of that is appealing to us as what we would call modern day Christians? Like we want to learn about kindness and all of this, but do we want to do the work? Do we want to actually, on our way down the road to Jericho, to stop and look at the person who's lying there bleeding? Right. And she makes us look at it. Yeah. So be prepared for that. You're going to have to stop and take a look.
2: We start this interview with actually a personal question. Why did she go to divinity school as someone who was not feeling at home in a religious institution?
0: Yeah, so I was raised as a kid in the Vineyard Church, but it is charismatic, evangelical. They believe in like the gifts of the Spirit and prophecy and speaking in tongues and all of these things. That was the kind of church that I was raised in um, up until I was about 11. And then we moved to Texas and... We started going to just like a a Bible church there. We were one of the few families of color there. I think that at that time, I was also really developing my politics, which as a teenager, were very oppositional to like everything I was growing up around. A lot of the places where it showed up was sort of acceptance of other people, being really committed to seeing other people have opportunities and have... Access to justice. And I don't know that I had like language or sort of understanding around the ways that politics and religion interacted other than sort of understanding my church as like a generally conservative place and feeling a little bit out of place. But I think as an adult, the sort of like friction that I could sense there was that there was very little about trying to make society better in that church. And it was a lot about self-improvement through withdrawal from society. And I was like, no, we're in it. Like we're we're part of this this place. And like, I want to, you know, make sure that people have enough to eat. And I want to make sure that like, families are able to stay together and and all of these different things. And I was just kind of like, there's all this other stuff going on. And as soon as I went to college, I stopped going to church. But I met this group of women who went to this church in East Harlem called Our Lady Queen of Angels. And their church had been closed by the Archdiocese of the city in 2008. I met them probably in 2010, 2011, and they were meeting outside of their church every week, every Sunday since that church had closed and having their own kind of mass, their own kind of community and sharing reflections. And like, it was a little bit of a protest still, but it was mostly about them finding whatever religion was or whatever had been important to them about their old church with each other. And I ended up writing a thesis about them and sort of, like, charting that transformation from protest group into, into like, church community. But I also wrote, like, a creative writing essay that was much more lyrical and brought in my own experiences and my own frustrations with the church and my own anger at something that I think these women had also experienced. You feel very strongly about God and you feel very strongly about the Bible. But when you look at the church as the institution, you feel abandoned by it in a lot of ways. So I think that Divinity School and choosing to go there was was the last chance for God. If I can approach it in this way, maybe it will be the thing that finally sticks or it will be the thing that finally helps me understand what it is about this that has led me both to walk away from it, but still feel like it's really important and really central and really a part of who I am in a lot of ways. And I think that basically what Divinity School did was kind of reaffirm that, that like, I am still not totally sure that churches in general are the right place for me or I haven't found the church that I'm like, ah, yes, this is, this is the place where I feel... My whole self, like, acknowledged this is home. But there is something about God, about Christianity specifically, that is, like, deep encoded into me and is deeply important and the assumption that I've been working from for myself for these past couple of years.
2: I think for my listeners, I should set out this idea of, like, so the book is in three parts first you're in Tijuana helping people who are applying for asylum and then they're going to start this terrifying journey through the US immigration system the second part is that you're in a church basement helping people who are already in the country probably been through that the border, the border portion, portion and now you're yeah. helping them translate their stories into English so that they can apply through the courts and then you actually are sitting in in the third section on deportation hearings for people who've been in the U.S. for some of them decades. And then you also get to witness or or serve as a witness of those warehousing prisons where immigrants are being or migrants are being held. And so that's sort of the structure of the book. But it also allows the reader to sort of see all the different ways in which humans are being treated by the system itself. Who were you thinking uh, is your audience for this? Are Are you thinking people who are informed on this topic and just need a rallying cry? Or are you thinking people who maybe don't know anything about this? What were you sort of writing to?
0: I think it was a little bit of both. I think even if you're pretty well informed or this is a topic that you keep track of on the news really closely, there is still a sense of like texture and humanity that's kind of missing from a lot of the ways that things are reported on. I felt like the book would be able to provide for someone or for someone who, say, had just done application translations and had not been to the border, had not been to a detention center, didn't know what those parts were like. I feel like... When you get involved with the immigration system, you're often getting involved in these really specific little points along the way. And so being able to look at it and and see the whole thing in the way that I have kind of been able to, and there are still things and places that I like have not seen that are part of the system, but it felt like I had been able to have a slightly more bird's eye view of it as well as being on the ground in all these specific, really highly charged places. There's a huge difference between being interested in an issue and being involved in one. And I kind of, part of the reason of the book is to sort of chart that journey and to be like, this is how I went from being someone who thought about this sometimes and like cared, but wasn't actually involved to someone where like, it's my, or it was my full-time job. It's something that I think about all the time. It's something that I am actively involved in constantly now, like my, my life has extremely been changed by my involvement in these different organizations and these different groups. And, and that was kind of who I wrote for was people who were sort of on the fence who maybe knew some things, but didn't feel like they could like get their arms around the whole thing or understand like how they could be a part of it.
2: Part of that is the discussion of how the system dehumanizes everyone involved, uh, but mostly these people who are showing up asking for aid in some way. Obviously, there's a morality in the book that says—I mean, that that line from 107, which I said kind of holds the book together for me, which is, you know, in the years to come, it will matter the way we treated the people who came to us looking for safety— it will matter who was wronged and how. And when I stop right there, I think, yeah, because Jesus told us, right? <laughs> like He doesn't say to us, stone the adulterer. He says to us, make sure the, the widows are taken care of, et cetera. But it's interesting because the next part is, I believe in a future where we make reparations for these harms, which sort of ties, I would say, some kind of policy making together. So uh, untangle that for me. What, what, what are the influences on that sentence?
0: yeah I mean, I think that it's definitely this idea of of a real Christian morality there. And I feel like a lot of our policymakers keep insisting that the United States is a Christian nation, but that only applies to like very, very specific policy points and not like welcoming the stranger, caring for the poor, all these other things. And so it felt particularly important to say, you know this is this is part of that. And I think the reparations line while I was writing this book, I was working at an immigration nonprofit and I was tracking pretty closely the government's response to the separated families. And by the time that I think that I got to writing part three, we were in the middle of like years of court cases where the government was sort of like being very weird about whether or not they would give money to these families who had been separated from their children. I think recently it's come out that these families are all getting asylum yes, that is the least you can do after traumatizing and harming these families is to give them the chance for the legal thing that they applied for in the first place or that they came here for. But it felt really important to me to say, you know, we have done these things. It is not too late for us to make things right. And and that making things right still feels like it falls into these questions of helping the poor, of of reaching out to the least of these, of we can repent and we can acknowledge that what we have done was sinful or harmful as a country. And we can say, I'm sorry all we want, but like that doesn't actually fix anything. And it feels in this case, particularly that like repentance is not enough, that reparations are needed, that we need to at least give people what they came here for and what they suffered so much to to even try to get a chance to achieve.
2: Yeah. I think actually you bring up a, an interesting point. What What does repentance mean, really? And so this idea of going to the border and of helping people, even in the small way that you keep pointing out how small it is, um, (laughs) even in this small (laughs) way, which seems really big uh, at the same time. It does seem like there are these religious groups that are there and are trying to help. And in some ways, it seems like religion is a really good place to do that helping right it's organized it has a network it has a variety of people so I kind of want to talk about both what you saw as positives and negatives of religious groups coming to the border in Tijuana in order to help folks who are applying for asylum
0: yeah absolutely and I want to clarify that like a huge part of the immigration rights movement is faith-based here in Chicago. We have a group called, like, the Interfaith Coalition for Detained Immigrants, and it was founded by nuns, and they go into detention centers, and they spend time with people who are there. The organization that I was a part of in New York, the New Sanctuary Coalition, was founded as part of, like, the sanctuary church movement that started in the 80s, and continued there no more deaths um in Arizona is also church based begun also by a pastor who was doing these water walks out into the desert to leave containers of water for people who were trying to cross in Arizona
2: I feel like those people are also in court challenging the border wall and stuff like that based on a Christian ethos right saying
0: Yeah um that this is they, against my some of their defense in court was you know this is a this is a case of freedom of religion. It is in my religion to give aid to people. If you stop me from doing this in the future, it will be impinging on my freedom of religion. And so um, while I was in Tijuana, I saw a lot of people there who were. Religious and who were faith leaders. The group that I was with was from New York, who were there to pray with people. Many of them, even when they came from traditions that didn't usually do this, were wearing collars, and so they were like very visible. People knew to seek them out if they wanted prayer, if they wanted blessing, benediction over their journeys, um, if they wanted someone to talk to. In in that kind of framework. And a lot of people there did want that. It feels like a moment that requires chaplaincy and it feels like a moment that requires some kind of a spiritual anchor in the same way that like being in the emergency room or waiting for a loved one to come out of surgery like needs a chaplain. Their role there was a really deeply spiritual one and really, really important. That was really good in most cases. There were also a couple of religious people who came down there who didn't really speak Spanish and didn't really try to, and were just kind of, like, wandering around seeing the sites. And that felt particularly bad coming from them, I think, and felt particularly harmful to watch them take in the sites. And, like, you kind of knew that, like, a sermon would be inspired by this later on or something, but it was... It was really rough kind of seeing that and and feeling like there was no even attempt to like make a connection or anything that they were, these people were so different from their parishioners that they like didn't
2: even know where to begin. And you you have a discussion of prayer. You're translating prayers at the border. You get asked to translate a prayer and, and it's for a certain girl who actually reminds you of you. So why don't you talk to us about that?
0: the priest sort of waved me over and I walk over and it's this family, two parents and a teen girl who looks to be somewhere in the like 13 to 15 range. And like, she's got her like chip black manicure. She's got a choker on, like she has been on the road for weeks, but she is still like, has a very specific sense of style that just reads like teen girl going through it in like some very specific teen girl kind of ways. And I was like, oh, I've been there. I know this girl. I have been this girl. And so, you know, we circle up, we all hold hands. The priest starts praying. I start translating. And I am not a habitual prayer. It happens sometimes. A lot of times when I was doing these prayer translations, it would just kind of be a translation. It wouldn't necessarily be a prayer. And this time, just like that girl being reminded of myself, being reminded of like, Where I was in my own faith journey at that time, like, if that had been me, I would have been, like, rolling my eyes and being like, oh, my God, Mom, why are we doing this? And, like, wanting just, like, this deep desire to want her to have the opportunity to, like, think these things through for herself or to have the space to you know, like write weird poetry in her journal and like be somewhere safe where she could like be just a teenager. And like somewhere in the middle of all of that desire, I realized that as I was translating, I was also praying, fully putting myself in these words that were not really my words, but were still words to God and words to this family also. And just kind of putting all my intention and like my desire for these folks to be okay. I don't know which is the prayer that counted, the one that the priest did, the one that I did, uh, the one that sort of like floats up into heaven somewhere between our little group and like God but there was like real, real prayer there that day and real, real just desire for protection and blessing and 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 safety coming from, like, all directions over that family. So
2: I hope that wherever they are, they're doing okay. I want to contrast that with the second story you tell about prayer at the border, which is a priest, I think, praying, we forgive the government for what they do. And you were like, I do not forgive, right? (laughs) Which I completely understand. But I kind of want to say, like— I think that was a really that was a powerful prayer too, right? Like, hey God, like this is where my heart is right now because of all the horror I'm seeing. And that prayer is just as important in my mind. Yeah. <laughs> um, than the one that says, We're we wanna play nice and um, you know, we're just hoping everybody can get along here. Um, I mean that's one way to pray, but I think I think your prayer is just as valid to say, <laughs> nope. <laughs> yeah,
0: absolutely not.
2: Um, yeah, I hadn't really thought of that as a, as a prayer, but I think that—I think you're right. One of the great things about this time in Christianity is this recognition, and I keep hearing it from all kinds of people, that God is big enough to hear how angry we are, that God is big enough to handle all the messiness and all the pain and especially when it's directed mm-hmm. at him or her or however you think of god um <laughs> and and that to me has been really important and so when i read that i thought i thought you are that's a powerful prayer that you're giving and god can handle it and i don't know what's going to happen right i mean i i do wish in my own life that god would come down and say i'm going to solve it all don't you worry yeah <laughs>
0: My bad, I'll take care of this, don't worry. (laughs)
2: Um, But unfortunately, I I haven't had that um, ever, so.
0: Yeah. I was also at a service that provided the Eucharist on both sides of the border wall. It felt in one way that it was sort of calling attention to the brokenness of the place where we were taking it. It was like, here is God's body and God's body exists in this place that is, a 20-foot steel wall that divides people from each other and that divides families from each other and that is a monument to so many of the things that are that are broken about this country and about the the way that we are living in the world right now and at the same time God's body is there that is not necessarily something that feels healing on its own but it is a reminder that like we are not abandoned Anytime we take the Eucharist, it is in a world that is, like, profoundly broken and profoundly in need of God's presence. Like, whether you're doing it on the best day of your life, sitting in in Sunday in your usual church, surrounded by your loving family, or whether you're doing it after a really long, hard week of providing direct services to people who need so, so much more than the direct services you can provide— in both cases it is it is calling God down into into places that are that are in need of Him, and yeah, it's something that I, I think I struggle with a lot, but it felt at once like it highlighted how how broken and how far from God that place felt, and at the same time, it was comforting that God could be there,
2: right. It's as if to say this is exactly where God acts, yeah. in these broken places.
0: And at the same time, it was like, okay, God, act. <laughs> like, fix this. <laughs> we are here. We're calling on you. We are doing our best to make this better. And we are
2: small and human. And, like, we need more. We need help. So you have this image throughout the book, which is of your family, engaged in what you call sobremesa. Mesa, I feel like by the end, you enact a sort of benediction on all these other families that are headed for the border that like one day, hopefully, if we do all of, if we, if we act as we should, these other families will have the opportunity to have their own Sobre Mesa, but here in the U.S. So talk to us about that.
0: Yeah, so sobremesa is very much like a a Latin culture thing. It is fairly universal in the Spanish-speaking world to whatever extent anything is universal in the Spanish-speaking world. But it's this thing of after you finish a meal, you just stay. You stay around the table, keep sort of munching on whatever's still there, but, like, you're not really— Nobody's getting up to do the dishes. Nobody's, like, worried about anything. You're just— spending time in community with the people you shared this meal with, but, like, you don't, you're not rushing anywhere. You're also not, like, worried about putting your elbow on the table because you're not, like, eating anymore, and it's not, like, this formal space. It's this really, like, relaxed, in-between space, spending time together in this really loose, informal way that feels like where the actual community and fellowship of the meal happens. Like when you say you're breaking bread with someone, yeah, you break the bread and you eat it, but then you do sobremesa and like that's where the good stuff happens. That's one of those things that feels like the place where I am closest to my family and feels like it is where my family exists sort of in its most natural state is sitting around the kitchen table after we finished eating. I think a benediction is the right word for it of Saying, you know, there is space for this here. There's space for the kind of plenty and the kind of richness and sweetness that comes from having a good meal with your family and then just sitting around the table shooting the breeze with everyone and and being able to spend that kind of time without any worry and without any without any concern over over anything. That was something that I was like, this is this is something that I grew up with that is very important to me. That was, is the way that I am close to my family and I want it for everyone. I want that kind of safety for everyone. I want that kind of comfort and relaxation and, and an ability to be together for for anyone who, who wants it. And in like the ideal society that I feel like I'm building in the book or that I'm describing, like that's what it looks like. It looks like being full around a table with everyone you love and having time to just spend with them.
1: That was Alejandra Oliva, who is the author of the book Rivermouth, really making us think about what it means to be, if you're a Christian, a disciple of Christ. And for me, I felt like this thing that seemed like the centerpiece, when she is translating the prayer for a, a family that includes a girl that she sees herself in. And that whole idea that that becomes not just a job of translation, but she realizes partway through for this particular group, this is a real prayer for her.
2: Right. And the way she talks about that work in Tijuana, how it's like being in a place where you need a chaplain. It's like being at the emergency room. It's like waiting for someone coming out of surgery. And in the book, she describes all of these different people who are there and all the different uh, layers of bureaucracy that they go through and all the ways that more experienced people offer tips to the newcomers. And it's an organized and scary and <laughs> people don't know when they'll see each other again. You might be in this or, same, if. or if they'll see each other again, right? You, you may be in the same family group, but you may not end up in the same Warehouse waiting for processing. Wow. Um, so there's all kinds of upsetting details that made me think yes, this is where religious people need to be, blessing and serving those who are about to engage in this.
1: Yes. Yeah, so she made me look at these situations. She also turned the spotlight for a moment, if I can uh, be honest, <laughs> and <laughs> made me look inside where she talked about that she didn't really feel like she was getting very much from congregations she went to when she was younger with churches who advocated self-improvement through withdrawal from society. Yeah, And I could not help but think of the line from Jesus about to be in the world, but not of the world, but that we cannot sequester ourselves from other human experience, especially other human suffering. And so this has me asking myself, what are the ways that I maybe think that I'm pursuing individual (laughs) self-improvement by isolating myself? And you'll hear realtors do it all the time, exclusive community. (laughs) And you think about, uh, to me as a kid, I thought, oh, that sounds very shiny and and clean. But what it means is we keep people out.
2: Yeah. I'm really touched by her dedication, her diligence, her consistency in this. But I'm also reminded That, you know, we are drawn to different kinds of service and different needs, often because of our own personalities, because of our own histories, because of our own experiences. Many of us need to get involved in helping the stranger and helping the refugee. But I think it's okay if you yourself are drawn to another need in our community. In fact, I think what she reminds us is there's probably something out there that needs you to be involved. You just have to find it and you just have to throw yourself into it like she has.
1: This episode was produced by Heather Bigley. Our production team also includes Leah King, Katarina Martinich, and Ashton Rowan. Our post-production sound designers are Mark Hansen, Daniel Phillips, and Carly Wilson. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. If interfaith understanding is important to you, be sure to leave a comment or review on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Find us on x slash Twitter at InGoodFaithPod. On Instagram and Facebook at In Good Faith Podcast, and on YouTube, our channel is www.youtube.com/slash/at-in-good-faith. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon, right here in Good
2: Faith.